Well, let me say amen to Leo's prayer and also to say amen to his word of greeting. I'm glad that you have joined us on this first Sunday of the new year and trust that God will give you reason to be glad that you came through the snow and the cold to be with God's people here at CCC this morning. Um, we're going to, this morning, resume our sermon and worship series, New Life in Christ. Our text for this series is chapters 5 through 8 of Romans, the greatest letter ever written by the Apostle Paul, who wrote in chapter 1, Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That's from Romans 1, where Paul states his theme, how unworthy you and unworthy I can be made righteous, made right with a holy God, not by our own efforts, for those efforts will always fall short. There is no one righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can't be made right with God by keeping his law. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The gospel that Paul proclaims is that we are justified by faith, made right with God by faith in the one who paid the penalty for our sin. Now, a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. One summer night some years ago, my friend Brian Wilkerson was driving to the mall to pick up his daughter. It was late, going on 11 o'clock. The roads were empty. His mind was wandering, and then all of a sudden he saw those blue and white lights in his rearview mirror. He looked down at his speedometer and realized he was in trouble. He was doing 48 in a 35 zone. The officer pulled him over, told him that he was speeding, and there really wasn't much Brian could say to argue. He gave him his information, and as the cop began to write him up, Brian, in desperation, said, I don't know if it would make any difference, but my brother is a cop. Well, the officer didn't seem too impressed. He said, yeah, where? And Brian said, New Jersey. And the cop looked even less impressed. Uh, How do I know you're telling me the truth, he said. And Brian thought about saying, well, I'm a pastor, but he wasn't sure how that would go over. Um, so the officer said, well, have him give me a call if you want, and handed Brian the ticket. Well, when he read the ticket, it was for 125 bucks, and this is about... 20 years ago, so I don't know what it would be today, but also it would give him some points on his license, 
So when he got home and the next day, Brian called his brother to see if he could help out. He wasn't sure that he could do anything, but he did call the Burlington police station, spoke to the officer, explained that his brother was not a miscreant or a scoff law, and the officer said, well, the ticket's already been written, but I'll see if there's something I can do. Well, Brian didn't hear anything, so on the appointed day, he went to the Middlesex County Courthouse in New York to stand before the magistrate. He had been to courthouses before, but never as a defendant, usually as a character witness. And he said as he walked in, he got this feeling that he was in really big trouble as he was waiting for his name to be called. Finally, he was summoned with about five other defendants into a, a, a hearing room, and um, one by one, their names were called. One woman uh, protested that she could not have been speeding. She drove that stretch of road every single day, knew exactly where the cop hid. <laughs> the judge asked the officer to read the ticket. He did so, indicating that the radar gun had caught her speeding, and the judge ordered her to pay the fine in full. The next guy had a sad story about being on... Um, in a hurry to the hospital with a sick family member. And again, the magistrate listened, asked the officer to read the ticket, and again, it indicated that he had been speeding, and the magistrate said, you've got to pay the ticket in full. Well, by this time, Brian was sitting there sweating bullets. He didn't even know what he would say. He didn't have any excuse like the others. But then uh, the magistrate called his name, and the officer, who was not the officer who had written the ticket, that also made Brian worry somebody else, started shuffling through a pile of papers and finally said to the judge um, he had no information on Mr. Wilkerson. You have no information on this defendant? Nothing, Your Honor. Then the magistrate looked at him and said, Mr. Wilkerson, we have no indication that you have violated the law, so you're free to go unless you want to plead guilty anyway. No, I, I would just assume not, he said. Very well then, you're free to go. Free to go, that's it? You mean I can just leave? He said, yes, have a good day. And Brian walked out looking rather smug at the poor slobs who were still there waiting for their turn to be called. He still didn't know what happened between his getting the ticket and his appearance in court. When he found himself standing there in front of the judge waiting for judgment, there was no record of any offense, any infraction. It was just as if he had never done it. No penalty, nothing, just the freedom to leave and have a good day, which he did. Now, let me read you Brian Wilkerson's comments on that story when he told his congregation about it. I hesitated to tell that story, he said, knowing that some people would be bothered by the fact that their pastor got a ticket. And you should be bothered. I'm bothered that I broke the law, that I was careless, that I might have endangered myself or somebody else. But the painful truth of the matter is your pastor is a sinner just like you, foolish, rebellious, self-centered. It's been a while since I've gotten a ticket. I thought I had one. I got something in the mail from the Pennsylvania Turnpike Authority indicating that I had been speeding in a work zone. I put it in my attention file, and yesterday when I decided it's time to pay bills, I got it out, and no penalty, 
just a warning. There's no difference, Paul says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Brian Wilkerson continues, some of you are bothered that I got off. After all, I was just as guilty as the other people in the room. I was just lucky enough to have someone who could intercede on my behalf, someone to put in a good word for me and get me off the hook. That's not fair, you want to say. You're right. It's not fair. It's grace. Mm. It's undeserved favor. That, he writes, is the scandal of the gospel, that guilty people go free that sinners are forgiven, that rebels are treated like long-lost friends. And the good news is it's not just for a few people who happen to have the right connection. This grace is available to everybody. Now, he continues, you could argue that justice was not done in my case because the fine was never paid. But that's not the case when it comes to our sin. Jesus didn't just put in a good word for you, he paid your penalty. Romans 5.8 tells us when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Justice was done on the cross so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who puts faith in Jesus. That's justification, the act of God whereby he declares righteous the penitent sinner who turns in faith to Christ. If you've done that, then God has nothing against you. No record of your wrongs. He's got no file on you. No permanent record of your failures. That's what my friend Brian Wilkerson said to his church family about his experience. And that's the good news that Paul expounds in chapters 1 through 4 and celebrates in chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. New life in Christ means peace with God. That's Romans chapter 5. New life in Christ also means union with Christ. That's Romans chapter 6. We've been united with Christ in his death and resurrection so that the former tyranny of sin is broken and a new life in a new kingdom has begun. 
Imagine that you're living in an apartment building managed by a brutal landlord. He extorts money from you. He comes into your apartment uninvited. He raids your refrigerator. After you put up with this for several years, a generous relative pays for you to move into a better apartment. And one evening, you're enjoying your new life in your new apartment, free from that old tyranny, and there's a knock at the door, and your old landlord barges in with the same demands and intimidation. Now, he may still be pretty scary, but your situation has changed. He no longer has any authority over you. Something like that, Paul says, is how it is with our relationship with sin. It used to dominate us. It used to have authority over us, but no more. Here's Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Romans 6, 1 through 14. So what do we do? Keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? That is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace. A new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we are lowered into the water, it is like the burial of Jesus. When we are raised up out of the water, it is like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in our new grace-sovereign country. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ, a decisive end to that sin-miserable life, no longer captive to sin's demands. What we believe is this. If we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him. But alive, he brings God down to us. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue and you hang on every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. That means you must not give sin a vote in the way you conduct your lives. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly and full time, remember, you've been raised from the dead, into God's way of doing things. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God.
Virtually all Christians know the truth of Romans 5, peace with God. Obviously, forgiveness of sins is part of salvation. But many Christians do not grasp the truth of Romans 6. That Jesus died and rose again, not only to pay sin's penalty, but to break sin's power. He not only changed our destiny, he changed our identity. Your destiny before Christ was hell. Now it's heaven. Your identity before Christ was that of guilty sinner. Your identity, now that you've trusted Christ, is a redeemed, forgiven servant of the king. All because Christ came into your life. In the movie Air Force One, the President of the United States, played by Harrison Ford, is taken hostage as terrorists hijack his official aircraft. Drawing on his former military experience, the President kills or disables all of the terrorists but one. However, the crisis is not over. There's nobody left on the plane who can land the thing. The Vice President and the Joint Chiefs of Staff are working together in a tension-filled strategy room trying to figure out a way out of this apparently hopeless situation. And as time is running out, the only viable solution is a daring rescue in which the Air Force will attempt to connect a zip line from a military transport plane to Air Force One. And for such a rescue to work, of course, precision is essential. All of the passengers make it safely to the transport plane, leaving the president and one terrorist aboard Air Force One. Just before the president hooks himself up to the life-saving zip line, the terrorist comes out of hiding and a struggle ensues, and shortly thereafter, Air Force One plunges into the ocean. Well, the officials on the ground anxiously wait through long periods of radio silence, unable to see what's transpiring. They all gather anxiously around the radio for a report from the military flight crew. All they know from the radar screen is that Air Force One has gone down. And a sense of defeat permeates the room as they assume that the president has gone down with the plane. Finally, the flight crew radios the anxious officials gathered in the White House war room to say, Liberty 2-4 is changing call signs. Liberty 2-4 is now Air Force One. The president had been pulled to safety into the cargo plane just before his jet plunged into the ocean, and the identity of the transport plane changed because the president was on board. You and I experience a profound change of identity when Christ comes in. Amen. My life is hidden with Christ on high, my Savior and my God. In this series thus far, we have already looked at chapter 5 of Romans and peace with God. 
We've looked at chapter 6, Union with Christ. Now we come today, at the beginning of this new year and this resumption of our series, to chapter 7 and freedom from law. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now... By dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, do not covet. Oh, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. You may find the next few moments of this final part of the sermon more helpful if you have your Bibles open to Romans 7, and particularly to the first six verses where Paul uses an illustration that can be both confusing and surprising. Confusing 
because to illustrate that Christians are free from the law of Moses, Paul employs this analogy of marriage and death and remarriage. But when you try to turn the analogy into an allegory, it's not at all clear whether the believer is the dead husband or the surviving wife. And the illustration can be surprising because why, after all, should freedom from the law be considered a gospel blessing? Wasn't the law God's gift to his people? A treasured possession of the covenant nation? Well, think of how the Old Testament refers to the law. The law of the Lord is perfect, Psalm 19. Oh, how I love your law, Psalm 119. So how is it that the apostle adds to peace with God and union with Christ this third gospel privilege, freedom from the law? Well, let me, let me speak to the first issue first, that this illustration can be confusing, and suggest that you take the main point and not press the details too much. The, the main point is that death ends obligation to obey the law. Uh, Paul's not alone in this. A rabbinic maxim held that, quote, if a man is dead, he's free from the Torah and fulfilling its requirements. And as we saw back in chapter 6, there's a sense in which Christ's death counted as our death. We died with him. So, in a sense, we're like the husband in this illustration. But we've also been raised with Christ, so there's a sense in which we are like the wife in the illustration, as the wife lives but is now free to remarry if she so chooses, you and I, in Christ, are free to begin a new life, a new kind of relationship with God. The illustration is complicated because the reality is complicated. Paul's a good communicator. He, he chose his example well. He could have used other laws from the Old Testament code, but the law of marriage allows him to illustrate both our death to the law and its demands, and freedom from the law for a new relationship. Still, it's surprising that a devout Jew would list as one of the gospel privileges freedom from the law. Chapter 5, Freedom from condemnation, great, praise the Lord. Chapter 6, freedom from sin's dominion, great, praise the Lord. Chapter 7, freedom from the law, huh? Yet Paul says in verse 4 that the law is relegated to the old era, before Christ, along with sin, condemnation, and death. It doesn't mean that we are now free from restraint to do as we please. Paul hastens to add that this freedom we have in Christ is freedom to bear fruit to God. 
What fruit? How about love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, self-control? Do you recognize that? That's the fruit of the Spirit that Paul writes about in another letter. We are free from the law, not so that we can do all the bad stuff that we always wanted to do, but so that the Spirit of God can make us want the right things. The law can't do that. Not that there's anything wrong with the law. If you were attentive to what Leo was reading, Paul says the law is good. The problem's with me and with you. There's a fatal flaw in any law-based religion, any effort to be right with God by trying to obey a written code. Fatal flaw. You may have heard me use this before. In his autobiography, Benjamin Franklin wrote, I conceived the bold and arduous product, project of arriving at moral perfection. I wished to live without committing any fault at any time. I would conquer all that either natural inclination, custom, or company might lead me into. As I knew or thought I knew what was right or wrong, I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other. But I soon found that I had undertaken a task of more difficulty than I had imagined. While my care was employed in guarding against one fault, I was often surprised by another. Habit took advantage of inattention. Inclination was sometimes too wrong for reason. I concluded at length that the mere speculative conviction that it was our interest to be completely virtuous is not sufficient to keep us from slipping. Can you relate? Keeping a code of conduct or knowing the code of conduct is not enough to make us virtuous. The law can show us where we're wrong, but it can't empower us to do what's right. The law does not confer on sinners the power to keep it. In fact, as Paul says in his personal testimony in Romans 7, sometimes the law gives us ideas about how to sin that we wouldn't have thought of otherwise. A smoker sees that no smoking sign makes him want to light up. You go to the beach and see a sign posted of all the things you're not supposed to do on the beach, and you think, oh, I'd like to do that. Here's a true story. Years ago, a developer built a hotel on the Gulf Coast of Texas. And in fact, the hotel was built right on the water, right on the water. And they posted signs in the hotel rooms, no fishing out of hotel windows. But people ignored the signs. Um, and people on the lower floors would be bothered with tap, tap, tap of lures or weights uh, blowing against their window. 
And uh, you know how they solved the problem? They took the signs down. Nobody had ever thought of fishing out of a hotel window until the lawgivers put the idea in their head. Paul says that's how the law sometimes works. Gives you ideas. But now, verse 6, Christian, be glad that you're not trapped in a Ben Franklin-like endeavor. A God-pleasing life is not dependent on your efforts to follow the written code. You serve God, to be sure, but you do so in the new way of the Spirit. Paul will unpack the new way of the Spirit in chapter 8, the greatest chapter in Romans and one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. We're getting there. Here's a summary of what he will say there. Instead of responding to a demand that's outside of us, written down for us, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we will now respond to a desire from within. A desire that the Spirit, who authored the law, creates in us. Now, I'll illustrate this in a homely way. When um, our kids were young, we sometimes had written rules for them. If things were getting out of hand around the house, we might post on the whiteboard or a sign on the door that says, no running with scissors, no jumping on the sofa. Now that our kids are grown, we kind of hope that those things are internalized. And I'm happy to report that when they all came home for Christmas, none of our adult children jumped on the sofa or ran with scissors. We didn't meet them at the door with a list of rules. It comes from the heart now. And that's not a perfect illustration, but it's not a bad one, because in Galatians, one of his other letters, the Apostle Paul writes that the law was intended to structure the life of God's people during their spiritual youth. But now, in the fullness of time, Christ came to bring the full rights of adult children <laughs> and his spirit within us does what the law outside of us could not do. And this, Paul says, is one of the gospel benefits of new life in Christ. Let's pray about it. Father, by the Spirit who inspired the Apostle to write these great chapters, would you now open our hearts and minds to understand and receive and live by these great truths. We join Paul in praising you, first of all, for peace with God, that even though there was nothing we could do about our sinful situation you, in the person of your Son, did all that was necessary that our sins might be forgiven and we might be justified. And we praise you with the Apostle for union with Christ, the realization that his death counts as our death, his life is something that we participate in and therefore 
The power of sin has been broken in the lives of us, your people. And now, Lord, we praise you too for this truth that we trust you'll help us to understand and embrace that we are free from the written code, free to live led by the Spirit into a God-honoring life. Help us to do so throughout this year and all the years of our life until the return of the King, in whose worthy name and for whose sake we pray. Amen.